All right, y'all. I am feeling absolutely motivated and inspired after this conversation that I had with our next guest on the I Am podcast. I am telling y'all, this conversation, I was on my grown shit. All right, let's just be honest. I I was feeling absolutely grown during this conversation, but after you hear who this person is, I think you'll understand why. Anyways, let's just say that tribal politics are not for everyone, especially me, but those that are able to take it on, woo, hats off to you. Our next guest is a mom, a wife. She's obviously a tribal member. She's an indigenous leader. And she's doing all of this in the most real and authentic way and being unapologetically herself, which I am here for and I absolutely love it. We also talk about how the past couple of seasons, there were some new realizations, some things that were brought to surface and brought to light and that she wants to work on going into this brand new season, this shift, this transition, all these changes that she's doing, not only for her personal growth and her healing and her own journey, but also in order to help her community. And y'all, this is my favorite topic is our people and what we're doing and especially the indigenous women that are coming up and just doing the damn thing i mean come on let's go tough and they're really rough and nothing's working but there's something inside of you that says i just have to follow that because you don't know who you're gonna this is Cola Shippentower. Some people know me for my professional fight career in MMA or even my journey with jiu-jitsu and pro grappling. Others know me for my advocacy for everything indigenous. And some know me for my unique ability of pissing people off while cultivating change at the same time. My goal is not to make everyone mad though. I want to spark your imagination through your heart and mind while encouraging, challenging, and even empowering you to think differently with compassion and love. I don't need a shit ton of followers or fans, only you, the listener, who's willing to challenge societal norms and standards to create a better world for all of us to thrive in. Let's go. All right, I am super excited for today's guest because, for one, I think Indigenous women doing amazing things is just badass in itself. Um, but this one means probably the mostest to me because this being my bestest friend, I mean, I will straight up give it away. She was a bridesmaid in, <laughs> was it both of my weddings or just yeah, one? Both your, both your weddings. <laughs> that tells you a true ride or die. She's going to just go with it. Like wherever I was going, whatever was happening, she was with it. And I mean, it's, it's amazing to have such close friends who are just amazing, beautiful souls that are doing the most and looking the most. And I think that's, uh, my, one of my favorite things, but without me getting into too much detail and giving it away, I think everybody heard the laugh. Everybody's going to know exactly who I am talking to. So Miss Jill Marie, introduce yourself, let the listeners know who you are, what you're about and what we're about to get into. Well, good evening. First and foremost, uh, thank you for filling my cup. Uh, I appreciate that. I also, you know, love 
love you so deeply. But yeah, no, my name is Jill Marie Gavin Harvey. I am an enrolled tribal member for the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. And I am on the board of trustees, which is our governing body. I am a board member at large. So I am uh, currently one of nine elected officials serving on the board. I am, uh, like you mentioned, I'm, I'm an I'm a indigenous woman. I am uh, working really hard and I'm part of the community and I'm a mother of four, I'm a wife and uh, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister. Hey, no, I won't go through <laughs> the long line of what I am. But, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a journalist, I'm a communicator at, at my heart and uh, I'm also an open book. I'm a sinner. Hey, I'm in the middle of my podcast. <laughs> I love you. It's my husband. I love him so much. Oh my gosh, that was perfect. He's just a sweet little baby. <laughs> that was amazing. Well, I'm going to go ahead and kick this off by talking about some of the work that we actually got into, probably what really connected us, which was your journalism, your writing. What's, what's that journey been like? So uh, when I was 20 years old, I uh, no, you know what? I was younger than that. I think I was 19 when I first started college. I had had a really unconventional route up until that point. Uh, we moved a lot as a child. We had a lot of kids in the home and I just, I couldn't find a place for myself at school and stopping and going and stopping and going. I eventually did drop out when I was 15. And when I was 16, I briefly resumed my journey in school by going to Nihiawe Community School. That was the first year that it was open. So that would have been 2004, I think, or 2005. Uh, and that really had been uh, just a trajectory route for me. I had gone to school my whole entire life, almost um, in urban areas. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and I did not have like a very uh, strong tie to, to my people, to my land, to my culture. Uh, however, when I went to Nihiawe, a lot of that energy and a lot of that, uh, that cultural reaction kind of ignited inside of me, inside of my soul. And I had always had very strong elders in leadership. And uh, my uncle, Atwai Calvin Shalal was a, a huge force in my life. My uh, grandma, Atwai Ruth Gooch Tyus, um, also was always very um, open and embraced us, even though, you know, we didn't grow up on the res and for people who um, have lived in an urban setting, they know how difficult that is to come to the res. When I was at Nihiawe briefly, um, before I dropped out to take care of my niece, Autumn, my brother was in Iraq and uh, I, I started taking care of her full time when she was about one. Uh, I had really kind of um, touched into a skill that I did not know I had. And that was in a writing class. Uh, I didn't get to spend a, a huge amount of time developing that skill, but when I would write, I think that that really kind of 
tapped into uh, a release of a lot of the trauma that I had um, had going on in, in my life up until that point, which, you know, as Indigenous women, we're so likely to, to have to deal with a lot of that trauma. Uh, I went back to school when I think I was 19, and I started at Portland Community College when I moved back to Portland. I took a couple classes, just kind of the prerequisites, and in my writing course, uh, my my course instructor had kind of pulled me to the side and she said, you know, you're, you're an incredibly talented writer. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whatever. She was like, no, genuinely. And I'm telling you this, like, this is not something that I tell people you need to have a career in writing. You're, you're that good of a writer. And I was kind of like, ah, I don't know, because, um, growing up my, my mother, Shauna Gavin, she's just a, an impeccable writer. And I mean, impeccable. And when I would write, when I was younger, uh, she would kind of redline it. <laughs> and she was just so brutally honest with me about like, uh, what grammatically was incorrect and, and what needed to be switched. And, um, and so that kind of, you know, like had given me a critical eye, which turns out was a really good thing. However, I, I didn't really understand um, that that was my primary skill. Uh, so after I had had my daughter, uh, Penelope, I was 20 years old and I spent a year just deeply impoverished. <laughs> and um, I started school again at Mount Hood Community College when I was 21. During that time, I didn't know what to do. So I went to see an advisor and I said, I think I'm good at writing. And they said, okay, well, why don't you try this journalism program? And I, I was like, okay. So I took one course and I just knew that was for me. I just knew I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, uh, I just had a feeling that if I were able to give this my all, I could really do something with, with this career. And I worked at Safeway. I worked swing shift. So what I would do is I would get up early in the morning. I would leave my house about 5.30 or 6 a.m. I would take the bus out to Troutdale, which uh, from where I lived was about an hour, hour and a half. I would drop my daughter off. And then I would walk to college from, from my brother's house where I would drop my daughter off. I would go to school all day and I would work on the, uh, the student newspaper. In my first year, I was just a reporter. And then I would go and pick her up. I'd walk back, pick her up, take the bus back to North Portland, drop her off at the daycare, go to, go to work from three to 11. And I would, I would drop her or I would pick her up and then go home and I would just do it every day. And, uh, there were definitely times where I was like, man, is this even worth it? Is this even going to go anywhere? And I just had a drive inside of myself after watching my mother work so hard um, and, and really kind of uh, take her, take control of her life. And, and um, I saw what she was able to do with, uh, with limited means. And I, I just knew that I had that too. I had that, um, that magic that indigenous women have. Like I can overcome anything, I can do this. And it was uh, really tiring, but at the close of my first year in my journalism program, I applied to be the editor in chief. And uh, generally up until that point, there had only been um, one other editor in chief. And every other year for like the past, you know, 20 years at that point or 30 years, there had always been co-editors-in-chief. And uh, I went to school with like a lot of kids from Troutdale. Those are privileged kids. Those are, those are kids who, you know, had very, very um, standard, very um, 
stable lives. And when they announced at the end of year banquet that I was going to be um, the first female editor-in-chief to stand on their own and the first uh, indigenous editor-in-chief, I just, you know, I was so happy. And uh, I just really felt, you know, as though I, I had, you know, started really on my path at that point. And, you know, there was some upset from the staff because, you know, they're looking at me like I'm not, I'm not a standard student. I'm a single mother. Um, I'm, I'm native, I'm poor and, uh, and I work all the time. So they were kind of like, well, why her? And, you know, I felt like at that point, like this is, this is what it's going to be for the rest of my life. People are going to look at me as if uh, I don't have the ability to achieve what they expect from people with more traditional lives. And I don't mean traditional in sense of culture. I mean, traditional as in, um, you know, two parent homes growing up, you know, with, with, uh, more stability and, and more privilege. And, and I, um, ended up, I think getting 13 Oregon newspaper public association awards, um, uh, on my own. And then also for the newspaper that year in the collegiate contest. And so I started, uh, looking for an internship. Um, in the meantime, I had had a second child and, um, that, that was a challenge in and of itself because I had to split my time between, um, my daughter who was three and, and my newborn and still do the best that I could. I secured an internship at the Walla Walla Union Bulletin, which is a daily newspaper in Walla Walla. And that was paid for by the tribe. And, and that was just an invaluable experience. And when I, when I moved home, uh, it was, I guess, probably my third or fourth time because during the winter break of my final year in my journalism program, my mother, Shauna, who worked for general counsel said, you know, you should come work for Will Finney. And I was like, okay, who, you know, who's Will Finney? And she was like, you don't know who Will Finney is. And I was like, yeah, I don't know who Will Finney is. And she said, he's the CUJ editor. And so I called Will and Will, uh, was very hardcore in his questions at first. Like, well, what kind of news do you write? And well, what is it that you do? And I kind of explained it to him. He goes, oh, okay, well, you're an actual reporter. And I said, yeah, I'm an actual reporter. So I worked for him over the summer. And then I ended up uh, going back to the Walla Walla Union Bulletin. And um, I ran into Will in 2013. Yes. No, 2012. At the 2012 roundup, I ran into Will Finney and um, he was by himself and he looked very frazzled and he had his camera and I was like, hey, Will. And he was like, I don't have time to talk to you. I'm so busy. And um, I was like, well, what, what's going on? And, and he was like, well, my reporter quit on me. And I was like, oh, and he was like, are you here visiting? And I was like, no, I, I'm, I moved here. I'm, I'm going to uh, I'm in an internship for the summer and I'm going back to Portland. And he said, hey, well, do you want a job? And I said, Oh, sure. And he was like, it's e-hire, but I'll, you know, I'll pay you $15 an hour. It was a lot of money for me than making $10 an hour at Safeway. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, for sure. You know? And, and so I started there and the first native American journalist association, um, award I ever won was for writing a story about you. And I wrote uh, a sports story and I still didn't have a grasp on, um, 
how in tune I was with the work and how in tune I was with um, myself as a communicator. And you think about us as a people, we tell stories and, you know, like that's our history books. And so I really felt like it was a part of me as a person and, and in my blood. So um, I won that award and that really kind of solidified like, yes, I really am in the right place. I had kind of thought of that a few times before, but after that, I was like, no, this is truly, truly what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I stuck with that for, you know, almost 10 years. I mean, you brought up like so many things like in here, I'm like trying to keep up on every little thing. I I was like, oh my God, oh my gosh, this and that. But um, I do want to take a little bit of a second to be like, yeah, that story was about me. It was really awesome. And it was actually huge for me in my career. I had just started getting into MMA and really trying to figure out even for myself. And so this is what's awesome about this type of work is that I get to meet photographers. I get to meet videographers. I get to meet journalists. I get to meet all different types of people and the work that they do. There's sometimes that they don't realize the type of impact it has. And for some people, they do understand the impact that it has, but that being the very first story ever that I had written about me in regards to my career as a fighter, it was just insane. Just how eloquently put it was, how well-written it was. Like you are truly an artist in your craft when it comes to writing and your story behind it is even this huge long line, like you're a single mom and you're talking about your, your brother. Obviously you have this connection with like the military and you understand how, um, important services are for veterans and the the type of things that they're going through with your brother um talk about urban living and just your resiliency to be able to still continue on a path that you felt that you were really called to and i i think it's really foundational for your your journey overall so it's been it's been really awesome to see um where your writing has taken you and just all the successes you've had and it just goes to show that you come from a very long line of leadership like this is no mistake in your family is you have natural born leaders who are ready and willing when they're called upon to be there to do the work. I mean, um, I know that in your family, you're not the very first person to be on the board. Like this is a, this is a long line. So, um, but then also with your writing, it's, you've brought this comfort to the people. And I think that's why the, the people were so just excited to have you in that position because it was, one of us. It's somebody that looks like us. It's somebody that knows exactly who we are, what we're going through, but you were able to capture either images or stories from a perspective of someone that knows exactly what we're all going through. So I think that was super duper powerful. Um, another connection that we have and that I absolutely love because your children are beautiful is, um, and especially with the work that I do, just a lot of advocacy and something that came up, um, in the past like year and a half, and it's kind of gotten a little bit more traction, a little bit more headway is uh, the Afro-Indigenous community. I mean, and how blended these communities are. So what has been like your journey with that coming from Portland and coming back to the reservation and with your children, your beautiful children. I mean, I have my son who's Afro-Indigenous, but he hasn't got to experience like what city life is like as opposed to what it's like on the reservation. So what is your, what your experience with that been? So um, it's certainly something that I've been well aware of, um, the disparities with how uh, 
minorities are treated within the justice system. Uh, when we moved to Portland, we moved to North Portland um, before the gentrification really had skyrocketed. So it was um, a historically black neighborhood. Uh, if you have been an urban indigenous person, you would know the feeling of floating out into space with no tie to your culture. You have no tie to your people. And if you don't have that active engagement, it's very easy to, uh, to begin looking for your place. Um, I was uh, from the very beginning kind of questioning that because I am half white. And I did grow up away from the reservation. And I did spend time with my family here on the reservation. But, you know, I, I didn't really understand um, who I was as a person. And going into a neighborhood um, where everybody is brown, and that's really great, um, but I don't have a connection to my culture, it was easy for, for myself being disconnected to to try and find comfort there and to try and find a connection. Um, the way that I went about it is uh, generally something that's common, but it's, you know, obviously not the right route. Like I was like, okay, well, I, I'm just gonna adopt this culture. It's very common among uh, people who've been disconnected from, from their people. And over time, I realized that, uh, you know, this is something that I was doing because of my own personal identity crisis. Like I'm, I'm adopting black culture, but that's not my culture. And, uh, you know, that's even, you know, it's an, it's an appropriation. And, uh, I didn't really realize that until, um, until I did move home. But during that time I did have, um, you know, a lot of friends, they were, you know, either they were Hispanic or they were black. I had some Asian friends and I didn't, I think I just resonated with, with Black culture because it was the nearest thing to my own people. And uh, as I delved deeper into my own language, my own uh, longhouse and, and all of those things, I really kind of discovered like, yes, I was trying to make a home there. That's not my home. Um, but it's still something that I have so much love for because there was so much acceptance among the Black community. Um, for myself, just because of the similarities between Native and Black culture. There is still a lot of issues there with anti-Blackness um, among Native people. And of course, you're going to run into misperceptions about Indigenous people, no matter where you go, just because there are so few of us. Um, but kind of doing the work and dismantling what my perceptions were regarding my culture and, uh, and where I fit in the world, I still retained that deep appreciation for black culture. And, uh, you know, I, my first daughter, her father, and, you know, I'm, I'm like, Cola, my kids have different fathers. He, uh, he's part indigenous and, uh, and he's black. And, um, he was a close friend of my brothers and, uh, you know, just full disclosure, we were not together, <laughs> but, uh, we did things that people end up doing that caused a baby. So, my brother's friend and I, we have a baby and, uh, you know, my daughter, my daughter's black, she's Afro-Indigenous, um, on, on both sides, she's Indigenous. And, uh, I understood because of my life, because of my disconnection for my culture, even though it was not of my own volition, it's not something that I caused. It was certainly, um, you know, government trauma induced because my mother was taken from her home as a baby and given to a white family. And because she was floating, we were floating. If your mother is not um, 
touching the ground, then you can't either. So it was really uh, a wonderful thing to see her come home in 2005. I love my culture. I love my people deeply within my soul. I love my reservation, but I wanted my children to not have to choose between being native and being black because that is not fair. And I know how that feels as a biracial person. Um, and these are not things that I can offer her because I am not black, because I did understand later throughout the years, you know, as I got older, like, okay, this is not my culture to give. This is not my culture to offer. So that caused me to understand that I needed to look for active connections to give her the, the, the roots that she deserves as a person, <clears throat> which we all deserve as a person. And, uh, then, you know, I, I was with my, uh, my other children's father, um, Abigail, Lisa Faye, and Jeremiah, we were together and, um, he is from Detroit and he did have a very strong connection with his family and with his culture. And, uh, my husband who is Penelope's dad, and this is a little confusing for people. Um, <laughs> he went to prison in 2013 and, um, maybe 2012. And he, he was, uh, doing a seven and a half year bid and uh, that connection was not perfect. I didn't do everything correct, but I understood the importance of offering to my daughter that lifeline of uh, of hereditary, you know, needs. And uh, so I remained in contact with him, and you know, our friendship blossomed to something else, and we ended up getting married when he was in prison, which is, just sounds like a crazy story, but we got married in 2019 inside of, um, inside of two rivers correctional facility. And, uh, it's just something that I understood very early on that this is, um, this is necessary. This is, uh, not a time to be possessive over my children and, and, how they relate to themselves and where they relate to the world. Because as indigenous people, we understand so well being um, at the hand of systemic racism and prejudice, but it is different. It is different than what, um, what those uh, Afro-Indigenous or even um, just the black community as a whole is going to encounter um, all the way down to the hair. And, you know, we understand that for our boys who have long hair, um, but it's different. And these are things that I, I can't shield them from and I cannot offer them um, the guidance that they need. They need um, active, strong black leadership in their life. And they need to understand that when someone sees that you are black, they are going to um, have a, a, an array of reactions. And a lot of those reactions, especially in a small town that is predominantly white, could potentially be dangerous. And so this is um, something that is a responsibility for everyone. And I understood that as a young age, before I even had children who were Black, I understood that um, there are dangers for people of color and there are even more dangers for um, indigenous and black people that are uh, separate and unique. And uh, that's where you know the term BIPOC comes from, black and indigenous people of color because black and indigenous people suffer separate prejudice than every other ethnic group in this country. You know, um, black, the black community is having to deal with, um, you know, hundreds of years of bondage and uh they were trapped 
in a way that said, if you even have one drop of black blood, then you belong to us. You are a slave. And that was to ensure that there was as many black people as possible, even if you're half white, even if you're, you know, three quarters white or, or 95% white, if you have a drop of black blood, you belong to us. And, uh, we dealt with something similar regarding our blood, but it was actually on the opposite side of the spectrum. And it was tracking how much Indian blood we have. And, and the less blood we have, then uh, the more likely the government is able to take away our rights. And so, you know, tracking them and making sure if they even have a minuscule amount of blood, they can take their rights. They want the maximum amount of black blood for these people because they want to keep them as slaves. They want the minimum amount of blood from indigenous culture from us because they want to take away our rights. It's, it's you know the same thing on opposite sides of the spectrum. So understanding that these are very deeply rooted American ideals that yes, slavery has gone and yes, we can vote now, um, but that residual effect is still, still very present, um, you know, with everything going on with, uh, with boarding schools. Currently, we have a lot of people here on this reservation who, who endured that, you know, we have a lot of people present day um, who are, who are black and have had to deal with, you know, drinking from segregated fountains. And um, as time has gone on, and I recognize the importance of them having that dual identity and not being forced to choose, I noticed that a lot of times people will say black or indigenous. That's not the case. A lot of people are both and they should, um, they should have that right to be both and they should belong in both communities. And uh, because of a lot of those um, systems that have arisen that uh, are aimed at keeping us down, there has been created a division oftentimes between our, between our two communities, because that was, the worst nightmare of the government, you know, from day one of black and indigenous people coming together. So, I mean, there was very specific systems set into place to keep us apart. And those unfortunately, just like racism are um, ingrained in us. And those are going to be things that we have to be honest about and we have to do the hard work to dismantle. And um, when we are able to work together and people want to act like that doesn't happen, but it does happen, um, then we can achieve so much more and realizing that um, if we can just understand that, uh, no, we're not the same <laughs> because people want to, you know, do that, the, the uh, kumbaya, oh, we're just the same, it's fine, but that's not holding true to the differences in our cultures and um, and recognizing that those people who are, who are Afro-Indigenous have dual identity and uh, honoring the, the different parts of their being and uh, the truly wonderful things about them in every single way, we do a disservice. But understanding that our struggles are similar and uh, the road to addressing those struggles um, is going to have to be parallel. I mean, you brought up so many interesting points, and but one that I really thought of while you were talking is um, the systemic racism and the prejudice that we faced in the BIPOC community is really, really frustrating because it's it's from this colonial way of thinking. It's from, like, for lack of a better way to put it, it's from a lot of white people. But what I cannot stand today, it fucking gets on my nerves, is this lateral violence, this lateral oppression from our own people. Um, and we're talking about, I, I think of like blood quantum. That was one thing that kind of came up when you were talking is blood quantum. Okay, so I have two boys, like, 
me and you could literally have our own like TV series. And like, this would be a roller coaster for most people to try to catch up with. But my oldest son and my youngest son are both enrolled because both of their dads are indigenous and they were able to have enough blood quantum to get enrolled. But my middle son who is Afro-Indigenous is not able to be enrolled because he doesn't have enough blood quantum. So what really pisses me off is that my middle son is going to be facing a lot of different issues. Like you said, this the duality of the issues for Afro-Indigenous people, it gets really, really frustrating. Um, but what I find really annoying is that I know for a fact that my son is going to be raised traditionally because that's what I am familiar with. That is how I was brought up. And that's how I know that he's going to be brought up in our home. Unfortunately, I don't know enough on that side of the family to have him connected to that part, to the black community. But what really sucks is that as soon as he steps foot in this community and wants to either hunt or do things in a longhouse, there's going to come this long line of judgment because of other people that want to look down their noses and say, ah, you're not Indian enough. Exactly. Oh, you're not a hundred, a hundred percent from here. So right. uh, we're going to kind of side eye this. So, and I mean, it's, it's really frustrating and I, you're sharing your story and the, the, the blessing that I have is that I I'm close to you. And so I kind of, I, I know a lot of your story, but you're talking about basically being this ur- urban native growing up in Portland, but something that I want to stress. And I know a lot of other people in the community would stress is that you and your family are those people that we call on for everything and anything when it comes to tradition, when it comes to preserving what traditions and what things that we do have. I mean, I can't even think of how many families have been able to call on your uncle, Michael Ray, or your mom for certain things, calling your right. brothers for hunting and all of that. And I just get really frustrated because you got some of these people are standing on their pedestals that are wanting to point the finger and say, Oh, you're not ending enough. You're not ending enough. And then the, I, I kind of sometimes have to sit back and be like, but do you know what you're doing? To be honest. Yeah. You're, you're on the res, but do you know, it's just very interesting to me and it gets me really frustrated that we already have to face this division from the white man, from this colonial way of thinking. So what are we doing when we're doing it to our own people? And I think that's probably what's really, really frustrating when it comes to this talk about blood quantum. And the other, the other side is some of the same people that are pointing these fingers are able to retract and feel safe when they get into a certain space. Cause then they're probably like, Oh wait, I look colonial, I'm very colonized. So I have that to fall back on. That's, that's like almost a safety net for some people that want to point the finger like that, where the most beautiful thing that you've done in your journey thus far, the biggest part is that you've been completely transparent and honest. I mean, our listeners are not even going to be able to question like, what your motive is, what, what's your, your idea, or or even how you're living your life is just completely an open book. You've talked about your, your blended family, like your beautiful family, but you're talking also about getting married in a prison. Not a lot of people do that. That's like a rare, like situation in itself, but all, all the things that you've done. And I think you've done it just so beautifully is you've literally been nothing but an open book transparency and honesty where no one will ever have to question your intentions or what's even going on for you because you've just been so real 110% real and I think that's something that a lot of people like oh you only know her because you guys are so close I'm like no she's been 
like upfront with all of you. I mean, it's, it's amazing, but you know, for us, it's a very interesting time right now because for our listeners that don't know, like you stated earlier, she is on the board and we're coming up into election season. So we're coming up on like campaigning and doing all this fun stuff where we get to talk about all the, the serious issues and things that we're wanting. I don't know. People are probably feeding other people just to get their votes, whatever they need to do. I mean, you, you do you, but, um, what I want to ask is of course, people are just going to have this question is what, what are your, your goals then for this next season coming up? So I do want to touch kind of briefly on something that you were talking about. And that's, you know, some of the internal prejudice that we do have to deal with as people. Um, I, I have felt in the past, you know, like, uh, the cards are stacked against me. You know, I grew up in the city. I'm half white. I'm a woman. Um, I'm younger than, than you would normally see on the board of trustees. Um, but those who, who did know my grandma Gooch was not someone uh, who tolerated self-pity. That is not something that has ever been tolerated. It's not something that um, we as a people tolerate. So you don't feel bad for yourself. My um, grandpa, Otway J. Menthorne, never allowed any of us. And he was so kind in his, in his correction, but he did not let us, you know, cry in your beer or whatever, you know what I mean? And um, so something I had decided early on, especially after having children and uh, coming here to go to high school on the reservation, uh, before I, I lived here permanently, I had decided um, that I was not going to apologize for who I am. I'm not going to apologize for being half white. I'm not going to apologize for my white father. I'm not going to apologize for being urban because there's no apology necessary. There's nothing that I've done in my life that caused things to shake out that way. And I don't regret any of it. Um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of struggles, but each struggle was so necessary um, to, to build the person that I am today. And everything about myself um, is, is a piece of, of survival because I have been through a lot of trials. I don't sit and, you know, dwell on them too much, but I understand that I have a responsibility as someone who is able to, uh, to speak out, to be a communicator, um, that I, that I have to be very true and very honest. And People assume when you're very outspoken, that is something easy to do. It's actually not easy to do. And uh, people who are outspoken, they suffer just as much concern over the things that they've said. However, when you know that you are in a position to be able to endure the heat, to endure um, you know, what comes after making a hard decision and being open about it, um, then you know that you have a responsibility to do that for people who don't necessarily have that same privilege. And it's not like I think I'm strong and other people are weak. It's just I know that even though I've, I've had a lot of trials, that I still am very privileged um, to be anywhere that I am. I'm, I'm not homeless. Um, you know, I, I'm not chronically ill. I am not, uh, you know, 
so psychologically damaged that I'm not able to uh, say what I believe in. And I know that I have a thick enough skin to be able to deal with it. So understanding that, um, yes, I I, I know that people look at me and they say, well, she's not even from here or she's half white or she didn't grow up here or she doesn't know exactly what to do in the longhouse all the time. That's fine. That doesn't bother me because uh, I know that that's coming from a place of trauma as well. And I know no matter what happens, no one can ever take my enrollment number. No one can ever take my family lineage. And like you mentioned, I I come from a long line of leaders. No one can take that experience away from me. And even if I didn't have an enrollment number, no one can take away my connection with my creator, with my longhouse, with my wash. No one can remove those things from me. No one can take away what I've learned. Everything that I have inside my head and my heart belongs to me and it belongs to me forever. So I have nothing to apologize for. Why would I apologize for growing up in the city? What am I going to do? Apologize for uh, the administration in the 50s and my mom being removed from her home? I don't have to apologize for that and neither should she. None of us have anything to apologize for, for the way it has shaken out for us as indigenous people. So that is where I come from. And that is why I am able to be honest about who I am. And, um, you know, running for the board in 2017, I had a choice to make. Um, I can be honest about who I am or I can project a different um, a different persona. And uh, yeah, people have seen me driving around in a little res ride and, you know, clunking around the res. They've seen my kids maybe being unruly or um, occasionally wearing dirty clothes or having messy hair or, um, you know, they've seen me out at the bar and kind of acting up or uh, whatever it is that they've seen. I cannot hide those messy parts because those messy parts are a huge part of who I am. And I had to decide early on, especially when I did get elected, um, Am I going to be someone else? Because if I am, who am I going to be? I don't have anybody else to be, you know, and I, and I don't, um, I don't want to remove those ugly parts of myself because those ugly parts of myself and those things that I've been through are what have given me the perspective I need in order to serve my people. Um, if we are all projecting this perfect image of, uh, you know, I never drink or I, I never go out or I never, you know, have any type of altercations or, um, I always know the answer then we're not able to move forward and we're not able to properly represent everyone because that small group of people who maybe do actually have it all together um, are amongst another larger group of people who are pretending to have it together. And when you have to pretend you have it together and when you have to pretend you're someone else, that's taking an immense amount of your energy energy that could be used on actually tapping into your people and your community and discovering what needs to be done to make long lasting decisions that are going to help us now and build something stronger for the future. And I had just really taken a look at myself and, um, and decided, I have to say it, even, even if I'm wrong, and, and be willing to um, admit when I'm wrong um, and uh, just really trust that I know I care about my people. I care about my tribe. I care about my community. And that includes people who are not enrolled. Um, and 
if I can remain focused on actually serving and not looking like I'm serving, not looking like I'm helping or looking like I'm making really good decisions, but actually trying to discover what I can do to help my people in a very real way and not just look like a, like a mother Teresa, then, um, then I can hopefully do something because life is so short. We only have a finite window of time where we can make a difference. And, uh, you know, as a people, we don't have time to spare. We're not, we're not healthy people. We don't have, um, we don't have a lot of, uh, opportunity generally, you know, and everybody has a different toolbox, but this is, this is how I viewed my, my term. This is my window. Am I going to spend it being scared to say what I believe in because I, I'm scared people won't vote for me? Or am I going to spend my two years learning as much as I possibly can, um, keeping my mind open that I'm not always right and I don't know everything and, um, and leading with my heart and, and saying things that maybe are not popular and they're not going to get me a lot of friends on the board or, or on the staff, but they need to be heard because there's just a huge group of us who, who do know what it's like to have a messy life and, and to have, um, you know, struggles, everyday struggles. Like, you know, like I don't want people to know that, you know, I have to return cans to buy milk, but if I'm not honest about having to return cans to buy milk or, or borrow $20 for Pampers from my mom or, or the fact that I don't have a lot of food and maybe I have to call Julie Taylor or DCFS to get some food. If I'm not honest about that, then it appears as though no one is going through that. And that's not fair. That's not fair to pretend that that's not going on. And those stigmas have to be removed. And people need to be reminded when they're sitting in a room full of people that are making 80, 90, $100,000 a year, up to $150,000 a year, that this is not the norm. This is not the standard way that we live as people. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to help each other. We started out this life as uh, Nititai as don't take more than you need. We've gotten very far away from that. And I'm not saying that I don't appreciate the privilege of making more money because it is a beautiful thing to be able to buy my kids sneakers. This is the first year that I've been able to buy my kids each more than one pair of shoes for school and like buy as much as they need. Um, because last year there was no beginning of school. And every year before that, I just didn't have the money. It just didn't exist. And so uh, knowing that that's not just me, that's a very uh, common experience. We have to be honest about it in order to address those, um, those things that, that are not equal in, in our community. So basically what I'm hearing to sum all this up is it goes back to this old saying of what's done in the dark will come to light. And Jill Marie is basically handing everyone a flashlight saying, here we go. <laughs> Like, well, not all look. of it, you know, <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're entitled to some privacy here and there, but I mean, not just coming from a community member, a tribal member, or your friend, I think in general, as human beings, if we're going to be looking at our leadership, people in these positions where they can create and cultivate actual change, we're wanting this, we're wanting transparency, we're wanting people to be just like us to say, hey, 
I know what you're going through because I've been there before. Or I'm going through it right now. I want to know that it's not the perfect pencil skirt, high heel situation or the guy rocking the Pendleton vest with the bolo tie. Like, I don't want to see that. Like, I, I get that cool <laughs> for the pictures. I get that. But can you get grimy and dirty with me? Can you help me skin this buffalo and carry it and pack it to my truck? Or can I call on you when I'm freaking out and I don't know how to handle my kids because they're driving me nuts? Like, that's what human beings, people want that kind of leadership. I don't want the picture perfect people. I don't want the clean cut version of everyone. I don't want that. I don't think anyone wants that. Everybody wants to know that who they're looking to, to make these big and tough decisions, having the difficult conversations are people that have been through it, have been literally through the shit so that the, the decisions that they're making come from a real place. And so I think just overall human beings, that's just what we're, that's what we want. And I mean, anyone, any one of our listeners can apply this to their life in general. It doesn't have to be, oh, do you have a tribal council you have to vote for? No. Who are you looking up to in your life? Who are you wanting to advocate for you and the issues that you have going on in your life? I think it's applicable to everyone. So I'm actually going to rephrase the question that I have. Because as much as I love that you're a leader and you're doing a thing and I'm all about girl power and all that, (laughs) but I want to bring this back because I think it's really, really important to always bring to light the human part of a person and that we're not just the labels that other people want to put on us. So going into this next season, whatever it may be for you, going into this next season, what are just some of the goals that you have for yourself as Jill Marie, the mom, the sister, the daughter, what are the, what are the goals that you have for this season? Well, um, you know, I, I feel like, uh, I've, I've kind of turned a corner. Um, when we got elected, just big dreams, big hopes. There was five of us who had just got sworn in. We weren't on the board before. Four of us had never been on the board before. I mean, we were really shooting for the stars. Like we could do anything. And I still believe that we can. And uh, we proved that by the way that we handled the pandemic. And I cannot even express to you how grateful I am for um, the, just the heart of everyone in our community in facing this, this monster of a, of a crisis, uh, first the flood and, and then the pandemic. Um, I will tell you as an elected official, one of nine and uh, having to make these decisions and, and being so new was trying. It uh, kept me up at night. Um, it, it gave me a lot of anxiety. I was nervous. And uh, I've been very public with uh, losing my brother and losing my uncle to COVID. And over that time, you know, before that happened, because my brother passed away uh, about a month and a half ago, my uncle passed away a year, a few months ago. All I wanted that entire time was to keep people safe. I just wanted us to be safe. And, and part of being safe means being stable, means being um, taken care of, means being um, able to sleep at night and not be scared you're going to be evicted. It means not being worried about how much food you have moving forward. It means um, even something as small as being able to provide your children with luxuries because they're in the house every day. Um, 
And uh, when we started being able to hand out the, the benefits, um, the, the checks that we gave to tribal members, uh, that was a fight. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm sure the others on the board can attest that's something that I chose to take on. Um, the, the last three checks, um, yeah, of course they were supportive, the board members, but I had to fight. And a lot of times it was me by myself. And um, I believed that this is going to be something that can help us. And, uh, and I would hear, you know, well, $750, that's not that much money. And I'm like, if you think $750 is not that much money, then you are so far out of touch that you don't even realize it because $50 can change your week when you are in a very impoverished place. And um, I wouldn't take it back for the world. I would never change it. But um, that took a lot out of me and it, it did um, deplete my energy. Uh, and I do suffer from, from depression and anxiety and, uh, and those wounds of having to deal with those, with those mental illnesses were reopened. And there were times where I did want to keep those things to myself. I wanted to keep them private um, because it's, it's, you know, it, it is a touchy subject. Um, and I don't want people to think of me as weak, but that was another moment for me to make a decision um, in, in addressing it. First, I have to be honest with myself. And, you know, I did take the time to personally um, try to identify ways to, uh, to address those issues. Um, I have a wonderful support system. Of course, you know, you're very well, aware of, of my issues with depression and anxiety. They, they come and go as most people understand. Um, sometimes they're worse. And uh, they had gotten to the point where they were disturbing my quality of life. They were disturbing my ability to work. They were disturbing my ability to, um, to really engage with my children. And I think uh, having to deal with um, pushing myself so hard because these are things that are bigger than me and they're bigger than, um, than my, my issues at home. I understood that, you know, I had to suck it up and it's not easy and it's not fun and it's not pretty. And, uh, you know, my home life did suffer because of that, because I had to put everything I had in me to go to work and do the job that I know my people deserve. But then I would come home and I would be so exhausted that my children weren't getting the mom that they deserved. So I had to understand, um, you know, I, I, I didn't drink for a couple of years and, uh, there was a time when I was very anxious where, you know, I would have a beer or two. I wasn't blacking out, but I had to identify that, you know, there's a difference between going out on the weekend and having a good time. And I don't judge anybody for that and self-medicating. And, um, it wasn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't slip fully back into blacking out and, and acting up, but I did notice a shift in how I was dealing with, uh, with what I was going through. And I'm very fortunate to have, you know, um, my mother who has gone through a lot of the same issues and in my family, but I, uh, when it comes to my feelings, I'm very private. Um, I'm very, uh, 
fortunate to, to be in a marriage. That's something new for me, obviously, you know, 2019, it's been a few years, but um, having a husband who has been very supportive of me and, and taking the time to understand what it is I'm going through hasn't been perfect, but um, really kind of seeing, I feel like I can do my job and I think I can do a good job. And I think I can still be an okay mom. And uh, I just need to be honest with myself in, in needing to address those issues. And so that's been something very personal going on with myself and, and losing my brother was very difficult. And, um, you know, it, it's very common for us to want to put on a brave face and be very strong um, and, and not let people know what's going on at home and, and not let people know what, what is hurting inside of us. And I felt like, you know, if I keep doing this, if I keep pretending that everything's okay, then I'm doing exactly what I told myself I wasn't going to do in the beginning. Yeah, it's very different. It's not me pretending to, you know, be like this very proper person. Um, but I am, I am, you know, kind of pushing something under the table. And, and as we know, if we bottle things, they're going to, they're going to resurface, they're going to come out. And um, I was dealing with a lot of that this summer. And um, especially after my brother passed away, you know, a month and a half ago, I really was like, okay, this is something needs to give something needs to happen. And at first, you know, I didn't want to go to therapy. I don't want to go seek mental health, um, you know, help or anything like that. Um, but it's not even so much like I'm doing a disservice to my family and my kids and my community because I'm not my best version of myself. I'm doing a disservice to myself. And, uh, by, trying to pretend that, uh, that I'm, I'm okay. And I'm happy. Jill Marie is, is not good for me. And it's also, um, not understanding that there are so many of us who go through this and there is a huge stigma with wanting to reach out and get help. And, uh, you know, like I said, like, I, I understand that part of my lot in life is, is, uh, saying the things that other people don't want to say because, because it's scary. So, um, getting, a active grip on my um, treatment of, of those items has been really kind of a huge deal. I had a very hard summer and a very hard spring. Um, and uh, just doing a little bit at a time has really kind of helped me turn the corner. Um, just, you know, something as little as like water aerobics. And that's become like a huge part of my life and me and my daughter's life. And that's something we can do together. And uh, that's been really awesome. You know, it's not great, but, uh, but tanning, <laughs> that's really good because I have a tendency in the fall and the winter to kind of dive a little deeper into that depression. And, uh, I don't want to use alcohol. You know, I don't want to use gambling. I don't want to be up smoking cigarettes all night. And I, and I don't want to, uh, be unpleasant because a lot of times I know that, um, when you are a private person, when you are a person that doesn't want to talk about your feelings, it can come out as aggression. So yeah, even if I don't drink or gamble or smoke too much, um, I could, I could end up being unpleasant or I could end up being in bed for days. And all of these things, um, are, are not good. They're, they're not, uh, they're not serving me. They're not serving uh, my children. They're not, um, helping me get to my full potential. So, um, moving into like my personal goals, like I, I have, you know, started going to therapy and that's something that I think is, going to be useful, you know, um, physical exercise, uh, doing the tanning and, um, and I can already see a shift. And, and I think that, uh, 
being honest about that and, and being able to tell people like, Hey, I want to respond. I want to text you back, but I just don't have the capacity right now. Um, instead of trying to give the bare minimum because, um, everybody deserves better than that. So that's been my, my personal goal. And, um, beyond, beyond that with, with my mental health, obviously, um, I'm, my other goal is to be the next vice chair of the tribe. And uh, that, that was a huge hindrance too of not being able to, to be honest about um, some of the struggles that I faced because I'm like, oh my gosh, what if someone thinks I'm too weak to do this? Um, but there's nothing stronger than being honest. So I think that that's been a really good uh, first step. And, uh, you know, I, I understand that there's a lot of risks involved with, uh, with campaigning and with being a candidate. I could be jobless. <laughs> you know, come December 1st, I could end up, you know, being, um, being unemployed. Uh, but that doesn't scare me, you know, and I, I could have ran for member at large and stayed in, in the same space. But um, when Jeremy announced that he wasn't running again, I, I felt this uh, kind of twinge of, of responsibility, of, of expectation. Um, you know, if you are a person who is able to lead, it's not like a, a pat you on the back. Um, oh, we're so proud of you. No, you have a responsibility. And if you are someone who um, is going to give it your all, and um, and if you are someone who is able to have those like those harder conversations, then you have a responsibility to give what you have to the rest of of your community. And um, that's just a very strong cornerstone of, of our, uh, of our culture. Like, no, no, people are not going to tell you if you're doing a great job, but they'll let you know when you're slacking. And um, so I, I did take that responsibility very seriously. And, and so I, I looked at myself, I looked at my past two years and I said, you know, that I am ready to take this step and I am willing. And, um, and uh, I have taken a look at, you know, every other candidate and especially for the chair and trying to decide what type of vice chair it would be to each person. And, um, and being uh, really positive about my opponent, you know, Aaron Ashley's running against me. And um, it's easy to want to drag other people down. It's easy to want to be negative and point out what's wrong with the other person, but how willing are you to uh, be honest about the work that you need to do? And one thing that's been very helpful for me is to come from a place of giving everyone who is running for the board the benefit of the doubt that they are here to serve their people. Um, does it look the same for everyone? No, it doesn't look the same for everyone. Everybody has a different way that they serve their people. Um, but coming from a place of, of saying, okay, you know, Gary, Kat, Justin, Woody, Aaron, everybody who's running, they all want to serve their people. They all want to see what's best for their people. Their roads to getting to that goal look differently. And um, if you're able to come from that place of, uh, of believing in each other and lifting each other up rather than tearing each other down, then I think that we can get a lot farther. So um, yeah, I want to win. I want to be the vice chair. I, I want to keep doing the work that I'm doing because um, besides journalism, this is probably the most confident I've ever felt in my ability to really make a difference and really make things better for other people. Um, but 
from that same place of saying, well, yeah, Aaron wants to help his people too. You know, Aaron Ashley wants to serve his tribe too. That gives me a lot of comfort that um, no matter what happens, there's going to be nine people who really want to help their people. And it doesn't look the same. People don't always agree, you know, Um, but at least I truly do believe that everybody wants to see what's best for all of us because we all come from the same place. We all came from the same land. And, and uh, I just can't imagine um, a member of this tribe not wanting what's best for each other, even if we don't get along at the end of the day. So what I really like hearing you say is um, advocating for your own mental health is something that's super important. And I think it's really hard, especially as indigenous people, and it like a cultural barrier that we we've, we've all carried is the suppression of our feelings of our emotions and um when they get bottled up it kind of explodes at some point and it turns into alcoholism uh, addiction in any sort of form domestic violence anything it can it can get really really ugly but i i commend you for reaching this point and just saying you know what like I've got to be able to sit and feel I've got to feel the feelings I got to feel it all I got to do something with it and the fact that you're advocating for it for yourself and just being someone that's been a part of your journey for a really long time now to hear a friend that's saying no I've got to do something is so powerful within itself so you coming to this season and just wanting to take care of yourself so that you can pour into other people this is you pouring in your own cup so you can continue helping other people and that's right. really important and you know the other goal and talking about um other people that are running um i also commend you on your maturity when it comes to talking about opponents because um i'm just gonna say i'm a fighter so i'm like yeah so, I'm, so always like, Fuck that bitch. I'm a fucker <laughs> we, and then we throw hands she's done for like that's how that's how i am that's my mentality that's how that's how i've gotten where i where i'm at in my my journey so when it comes to um healthy competition i'm a little toxic so um so you you are very graceful in that and i will say that that's why we're a little yin and yang because yeah yeah um, yeah for sure but that's but that's really awesome and i think uh, again like this applies to everyone if you're looking at leadership roles of if you should be taking the next step into helping build your community, helping even lead your family. It doesn't have to be on this huge, global, large scale. It could be even within your own home is listening to your intuition, that gut feeling. If you're just like, yes, I should be doing that. And that's what you're doing. You're going towards that calling, whatever it is that creators wanting you to do. That's what you're, that's what you're following. And unfortunately for some people, they just, they, they might not be doing that. You know, I'm, I'm just going to say it. Some people might just be doing it for the clout. Some people might just be doing it for that big paycheck. Like, I'll say it. Um, hey, I'm hey. not running. I'm not running for the board, <laughs> so I can say it. Some people kind of think like, "Oh yeah, I could do it," and then we're all kind of sitting here like, "Oh shit!" Now we gotta. Now we got two years with this person. This is gonna be fun. Um, but, but if you're just, part of, if you're part of the mix, you have to come from that place because no matter who gets in there, no matter how much you don't get along or don't like each other, you have to work together, or you're not gonna be able to get anything done. So like that's how I've formed my perspective so that no matter what happens, I feel like if I don't get in, then we're still going to be taken care of. And if I do get in, I can work with anybody because that's what we have to do in order to make a difference. Well, absolutely. So y'all can hear, uh, Jill Marie is the good influence. I'm the bad influence. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I don't do politics. I don't do politics. I, I, 
I will just do my, um, my little podcast gig over here and just talk to people like this. And then I will continue going to fold laundry with bodies still in it and then get up and say, Hey, I'm out here representing my people. Well, you know, I think everybody knows that, you know, I, I definitely can be stern and (laughs) I can be a, you know, a worthy advocate. And there are times that, you know, like I, like I said, I, I need to keep my aggression in check. Um, but these are, these are things that I'm, I am actively doing for, for myself in order to, uh, have a a healthier outlook. So, you know, I've not been, I'm not always happy Jill Marie, but, um, you know, sometimes we do have to put on the gloves as you know, and, um, (laughs) those are necessary things. And and sometimes we do have to fight and and we know that as a people. So I don't want to give the impression that I think that I'm like, you know, all roses and sunshine all the time because people who definitely, definitely work with me. No, that's not the case. (laughs) I think, I think you're, you're definitely like in this, in this perfect position where you're able to remain professional and real and transparent yet i mean you still have your own your own moral obligations that you you come to like i i know nobody crosses the line with your family and that's something yeah, you can still I meet me they... in the parking lot okay <laughs> hey, as long as we get food afterwards i'm always Nay. good <laughs> so all right so the way that i love to end these is because usually we do cover some heavy stuff we talked about politics we've talked about um the loss of loved ones we've talked about you know urban living urban indians we've talked about just politics all the heavy stuff so i love to do rapid fire and the the biggest challenge of this for most people is i tell you you've got two or three words to answer so stick to two to three words oh, okay yes yeah. ask me questions all right here we go ready what's your favorite dessert uh pineapple upside down cake What's the first thing you notice about someone when you meet them? Um, usually how, how they speak. Best fashion advice you've ever gotten? Wear whatever you want. Life is short. Yes, I love that one. Um, what's the best compliment you've ever gotten? Um, I don't know. Likely something about um, uh, being able to articulate really well and being self-aware. And what's something you don't like? don't like people who bully because they want to make themselves feel better. Amen, sister. And you are actually our first guest with this new transition from the old podcast, the new podcast. You are the first. You are the first. So we have made this transition into the I am podcast. So it's all about affirmations speaking things into existence, manifestation, if you will. So we are asking that every guest that comes on, just leaving our listeners, of course, with your, with your last little tidbit, your last thought where we could follow you at, and then ending it with your I am statement. Um, okay. So I don't know what my I am statement is, but I can share one of my affirmations I say every day. Um, uh, you can find me at facebook.com slash Jill Marie for BOT. You can find me at Jill Marie, Jill Marie, um, no hyphens or anything like that. And, uh, you can basically look me up, uh, and, and find any, any one of my handles. And, and I, like I said, I'm an open book. So slide in my DMS and not in an inappropriate way. Or, um, hey, just kidding. Hey, Go down. Um, no, but, uh, 
what is an I am statement? Just I am, what is it? So something positive about myself or Mm -hmm. something you want to leave the listeners with? I am strong. I am smart. I'm a hard worker. I listen. I am beautiful. That's something I say with my kids every day without fail. Yay. I love it. And I will definitely be linking everything where you can follow Jill Marie in the show notes and make sure you go and follow her, show her some support and some love. This has been amazing. I love this. It's a huge blessing for me to be able to sit down and have this conversation with you. I am just going nuts right now. So The I Am Podcast was created and produced by me, Cola Shippentower. You have to be your biggest fan. And when things are really tough and they're really rough and nothing's working, but there's something inside of you that says, I just have to follow that. Because you don't know who you are.